Hello, Mitra. Arden. Hi. Hi. How are Hi, you? Hi, Jesse. I'm great. Great, great. Okay. I'm, uh, <laughs> we're here in my little studio with, uh, with light that's falling down. And it's actually a coincidence because I'm talking with the CEO of Lumeter Networks that knows everything about about energy and sustainable energy, <laughs> which is not the case at my place at the moment. Um, for people that are listening, Mitras uh, Andron is a CEO of uh, Lumeter Networks, and they provide payment methods that enable social entrepreneurs to reach undeserved populations in developing countries. Uh, do I say it correctly? Yeah, that's right. That's us. Cool. So, Mitra, uh, yeah, we actually met each other at, uh, at the, f the first time, it was like almost two years ago, at uh, the Sankalp conference. Uh, Sankalp is a conference that is uh, actually, well, connecting social uh, impact investors with social entrepreneurs. So, impact investors are not per se philanthropes or angel investors, but also investors that actually see business in doing good um do you have another way to uh, to refer to the suncop conference <coughs> i always find it difficult to to get to the core what they actually do yeah i think that's right i think it's the gathering of the social enterprise sector in india mm -hmm. yeah and it's like the sister conference of uh, socap right social capital markets yes exactly hosted yeah. in san fran yeah, and uh, we met over there and we, uh, well, you got kind of uh, included, social included in one of my workshops, I guess. <laughs> Back then it was called a collision session in, in which I actually um, gathered all the investors and social entrepreneurs and ev actually everyone in the space that were uh, participants of this conference, uh, Sanka conference in, um, where was it again? It was in Mumbai. And uh, there we met. Um, how was it for you to experience this weird uh, intervention, actually? It, it's, uh, it was fun doing it. It was a good way to meet people, um, a good way to um, go a little bit deeper than the conference, which is, um, you know, like most conferences, tends to work on the superficial layer rather than the human layer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. And uh, did you, did, do you remember, did you get something out of that uh, session? I don't remember. It was a couple of years ago now. Yeah, <laughs> I do have you smiling on the on the picture when everyone looks <laughs> a little bit confused. You're like, "Hey, yeah, that was funny." There were people coming up to me. They said, "Oh, let's skip the panels. Let's just do this." You know, <laughs> meeting up with people and uh, and and transform our lives and businesses. Right, and I think that's what conferences are about. But I think sometimes the conference organizers think it's all about presentations and plenaries and important people on stage. Yeah, that feel nervous, and then the, out of the crowd of 200 people, there's only one person interested in the specific topic, or they mm -hmm. get into a debate, and you're kind of not there anymore, you don't feel included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the that's the dangerous, well, dangerous, that's the challenge of a conference, I guess. Um, okay, and after that, we met again last year in April in Delhi, again at Sankalp, and I had some different mm -hmm. workshops going on uh, about uh, Get Agile, how to get an agile mindset and behavior and what it actually entails 
For me, agility means uh, getting more adaptive, but also generous and use your intuition, leap into new situations and be empathetic towards yourself and others. I think if those five component, uh, com- yeah, competences, if you have it in your in your behavioral sets, then um, yeah, then you you have a better chance of succeeding as a social entrepreneur as well. And um, so, at this point of time, um, what do you do? And maybe the second question could be, why do you do what you do? <laughs> so well, <laughs> good, and, and almost you should do them in the other and the other. Oh. Order, but uh, what do we do? We we work on payment systems. Um, the challenge for a lot of people working in energy, and it's the same in some other sectors, is you've got a solution that works, like small solar systems, that people could afford, but there's no mechanism for them to buy them. Um, you know, because they don't have that much cash. Most poor people don't have that much cash sitting around, and so we develop the payment systems that allow people to pay for stuff over time. Um, and build it into physical hardware, uh, and and obviously the software side of it, so that uh, so solar companies can can work with really poor people. Wow, great! Um, yes. Yeah, and why? Um, yeah. I mean, I I do this because I'm 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 interested in solving big problems, and um, you can't solve the whole of a big problem. You have to solve a bit of it, mm-hmm. um, and and so this was a bit that I knew how to solve. Um, I thought, you know, it, it, any 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 problem is really um, a series of solutions that that hit barriers that stop them actually solving the problem. And this was a barrier I saw that I could take out the way and and hope that and and believe that there are many other social entrepreneurs who are and and you know other good people working on solving other parts of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it can be quite a, a, a big uh, a problem, um, in the sense of um, on what trans. If if you had to kind of pick your prim- primary focus on, on what kind of transformation would you like to contribute? Well, so you can you can narrow that down. So mm-hmm. if you if you start at the broader sense, it's it's you know why does a third of the world's population live in you know, crushing poverty, um, and then within that you can say, well, there are basic things: health, education, you know, energy, water, food, and energy is the one I'm interested in. And within the energy sector, you know, what's the what's the problem that I can work on to solve? Mm-hmm. It's just a bit of it. It's there's no point in me going out and designing new solar panels or or building LED lights. Someone else is doing that. Um, let's work on this this payments issue. Yes. Uh, do one thing really well. Nice. So focus on the one thing, as many say now nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Focus on the one thing without having the illusion that that's the most important thing. Nice. So you're still really conscious about yeah all the other stakeholders in the field and uh, yeah mm-hmm. you really you really think in complementary um, ways of of collaborating and and well on this problem. I think you have to, right? You have to work with everyone in the field. I think in, on almost any problem, you have to collaborate. I mean, one of the challenges with scaling solutions in the social sector is that too many people try and solve the whole thing themselves. Mm-hmm. And instead of building on, on what other people are doing and, and, 
you know, doing one thing well and working with others to solve the problem across the, the whole of the world. They, they you know, go to one village and, and solve that problem in that village and forget that there are you know, um, hundreds of thousands of villages and there aren't hundreds of thousands of people willing to give their time to go and solve the problem in that one village. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, uh, yeah, you're right. Most of the time I ask the question, why do you do uh, what you do first? Uh, I'm still kind of um, moving back and forth the order because sometimes the listeners do not know what you do and now they have a reference uh, to, yeah. to bounce back and forth with. So you said, why do you do what you do? Because it's kind of a, an intrinsic drive, if I can, uh, if I say it correctly. And uh, is this something that you ha always have, have carried along with you? Like, have you always been into, well, working on this problem or what is your background in this sense? Um, yeah, I've, I've always been interested in how do you solve big problems. And I've worked on different problems at different times. Uh, my first work was uh, building out the internet to developing countries back in the 90s, the early 90s. Um, and we started an organization that took the internet into most of the developing world. Um, and that was an NGO. And, and then I've worked on um, other things like how do you get residential solar to scale in Australia and um, food systems and green materials and, and different aspects of different problems. But it's always been about, you know, what can you do with your life that actually makes a difference? Mm -hmm. And um, you, you mentioned in the 90s getting the, yeah, the web. In... It was before the web. Before the web. You actually... You, you were already working on, on the web, getting it into the, the developing countries. Is that what you said? Yeah, we were putting the, the internet, which in those days was email and chat rooms and things like that. Messenger, so what was it again? Yeah. And before Messenger. <laughs> All right. Before there was an at sign in email. Okay, wow, wow. Yeah, I remember my first email address. I was 17. So, yeah, for me, it's... Uh, well, it's not all of my life. I'm actually working on the web, but uh, I cannot live without it anymore. So that's for sure. Um, actually, at least that's my perception. So um, is, is, do you always combine business with impact? Because this was a non-governmental organization. Um, yeah, you were not making any profit. You were working with partners, I guess. Um. For me, the question isn't business or nonprofit. The question is, how can you most effectively work on a problem? Mm -hmm. right. So um, that first organization was a, a business, but it was a nonprofit business um, that we started in England. And then the international organization is an NGO, is a you know, more classic NGO um, that's still around. Um, uh, I think it's all about saying, how, how do you solve a problem? Where's the money going to come from to solve it? You know, if you have the potential to solve a problem while creating a viable business doing it, then you can raise investment. And investment's a lot easier to, to work with than philanthropy. Um, so yeah. that might be the best solution, especially if you want to work something at scale. Because the, 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 to me, when I, when I look at a, someone solving a problem, one of the fundamental questions is, if you were to solve the problem for twice as many people, would that be better for you financially or worse? 
Now, if it's a if it's a non-profit, generally the question is worse. It's going to take twice as much money, which means you have to find twice as many donors. Yeah. If if it's a business, then usually solving a problem for twice as many people means you've got twice as much money coming in and you don't have twice as much expenses. So it's actually better, which means, and, and that to me is a, is a drive towards scalability. If you can create a, a solution where to solve it on a larger scale is actually better than solving it on a small scale, then you have a potential to solve the problem at the scale of the problem. Exactly. If you, if you don't, then you only have the potential to solve the problem at the scale of the donor dollars available. And you know everyone's chasing the same donor dollars, so... If you solve your problem at scale, it means someone else is not solving their problem at scale. Exactly. So, um, inherently, do I uh, get you right? So, if there's a business model that 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 aligns scalability on on the problem solving and on the gaining money, uh, mm-hmm. that is more sustainable in a sense. I think so. Yeah. I, but there, but I but I really acknowledge that there are multiple ways to solve problems. Sure, and that non-profit sure. models, open source models, uh, sharing models, um, even donor-driven models. I mean, donations have a huge part or could have a huge part to play in you know, innovative early things mm-hmm. uh, where no, no investor is going to come in. But if it, going to scale, very few problems have been solved with donor dollars at scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, at the moment I have a new venture as well. It's called Host to Transform, <clears throat> and it's more focused on um, a transformation of teams and 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 pers- per- people actually to get more comfortable uh, with fast changing world and to see to seize opportunities and to seize windows of opportunities for themselves and the work environment. And uh, at the moment we're working on an online platform as well. And yeah, for me investors uh, could be interesting uh, but i also have the sense that f- for me for this case it should go in a more organic way that you know i meet someone he or she falls in love with uh, with the product i'm selling and then we can talk about scalability because for me it would be interesting in terms of yeah money but also in terms of impact then it could you know become bigger than uh, amsterdam and surroundings um so yeah, for sometimes uh, do you also think that are you an advocate of of pitching your your model and and get investors in as, as soon as possible, or do you also feel like well this organic way of you know it's not it's it's actually like you know getting to know new people you hang around with and, and you trust and you build a relationship, or am I just naive and should I out, go out there and pitch and uh, scale my business as soon as possible? That's a good question, and I think it's it's very situation dependent. Um, you can't. It's very hard to get investors until you can convince them that it's going to succeed. Mm-hmm. And succeed means generating enough return to justify the risk. Like if there's only a one in three chance of you succeeding, the investor better be getting more than three times their money back, yeah. or they're losing money on average because they'll invest in three businesses and two of them will fail, and they'll make a little bit of profit on the other one, and uh, whoops, pretty quickly they're not an investor anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it really depends on what you're doing. Like I spent a year before I started Lumita and went out for, like started the company and went out looking for investors, working on a product. Uh, so I spent spare time. I was doing, uh, you know, some uh, nonprofit mentoring, and in my spare time, I was working on developing the Lumita idea. And that was long before I, you know, most of a year before I actually tried to raise money for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a uh, as an individual 
consultant type thing, which is more like what I see you're doing with Host to Transform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's many other social ventures like that. What would an investment be? I mean, because you, you know, you need to, you need to, the, the money that comes in pays for your time. Mm-hmm. And that generates that hopefully you get more money in than it costs you to live. And then you gradually do better and better. And, you know, more money comes in. It's hard to think of that going out to investors mm-hmm. because then you need to make so much more money because you, investors are not just money coming in, they've also got to pay them back at some point. Which means yeah, you have I to make understand. enough profit. Yeah, it, yeah, well, this aim of this podcast is not to talk about my business per se, but I, I would like to uh, illuminate a little bit more about uh, on that because it's not that I'm going to sell my hours. That's not how the business model works. There's already people that are trained to do what I do, so that's one way. Um, yeah, just kind of working yeah. with other entrepreneurs and there's like some uh, revenue stream uh, percentage for me and for them. Um, but it's also an online thing. So when the online program is finished, um, yeah, the more people that see the program and feel like they need it, um, yeah, the more, the more, um, the more chance for, su- for success. So right. that's, that's exactly. the product part. So it's not only a surface. Yeah. And, and when you've got a product, then it starts to become a question. And, and I'm not just talking about your business. I'm kind of using sure. that as an example. It's yeah, like perfect. That, a, a, a product business, well, does it, how much does it cost you to develop the product? If it doesn't cost you much to develop it, it might be better to do it organically because then you don't have this debt to the investors. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you need a lot of money to develop it. And in our case, we had to pay engineers. We had to pay you know, consulting engineers to turn my kind of amateur solution into a professional one we had to pay to get manufacturing done we had a lot of things that that required capital yeah and so we had to go raise money um, and we still do we're, we're raising more money again um it's all to me it's all about what's the right kind of money and money is both a you know a benefit and a cost mm-hmm. you know, when someone says oh this company raised four million dollars i say yeah you, that's great they've raised four million debt as well <laughs> yeah. they've got four million at least that they're going to have to pay back yeah. Uh, yeah can their business generate enough revenue to pay that back if they can great you know that might be the right way to do it that's not uh, always the case in how investors work right that you have to pay the money back i mean you want to of course otherwise you're just wasting people's time <laughs> and money and effort but yes yeah, I think you have digressions in that. I mean, startups well, will not be in debt after they fill, right? Well, but I mean, um, a, certainly in the non-social venture space, you've always got to pay the investor back somehow. Because mm-hmm. you know, even if you're growing a startup, at the end, you're going to have to sell the startup to make the money to pay the investors. And there's a lot of different things that are being done in the social impact space, partly because there's almost nobody actually sells a business in the social space. Yeah. And, and you've certainly got a variety of investors. I mean, one of the investors that's coming into our next round, he certainly wants to see money coming back because so he can invest it in something else. But he's one of the kind of investors that comes from a business. Well, think of it, you can think of him as a donor coming from a business background who wants to see his resources create as much impact as possible. And, and I think most of our investors fit into that that side you know they want to see as much done with the money they have given me as possible and at the yeah, end of the day in a, in, a do- in a donation kind of sense they don't it's, really expect the money so much being multiplied or back well they do but that's not why they do it yeah exactly right. if you think about it if you think about it this way if you've got a million dollars and you want to create a lot of impact 
if you write a check to somebody one year, the, the letter from them the next year is going to be asking for another check if it's, mm-hmm. a, if it's, a, if it's an NGO. If it's a social business, you, they might come back for some money next year, but hopefully by the third or fourth year, they're sending the investor checks, not the other way around. And that means that the investor can then go and use that same million dollars to go start something else. Yeah. Right? And so, so if you think about from uh, how can I have, if, if I've got money, how can I achieve the most impact with that money? Then the best may, way might be to find a business you can invest it in, get twice as much back in five years, and then go invest it somewhere else. Yeah. Because yeah. you can keep, that money can keep working for you, can keep creating impact. Yeah and, yeah, and that's why, in many ways, I say to people that social social ventures are, in many cases, the most effective form of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, most investors in this space are not looking to take the money out personally. Mm. Most investors I've spoken to, they want it back, but they want it back so they can put it to work again. Yeah, yeah, and they don't think of a revenue stream in, in to to really make a living out. I mean, they have other businesses, I'm sure. But is yeah. there, do you know, maybe that's a good question, do you know a, a social business that has a revenue stream, you know, works as a, as a normal business? Well, many social businesses do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the point of a social business is you create a revenue stream that, um, you know, from solving a problem, from selling something, selling a solution to a problem to people who can afford to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you can generate more revenue than your expenses, then you can continue that revenue stream back upstream to the investors. Yeah. And, and uh, one of our investors certainly has, gets money back in from his businesses that he's invested in. Um, <clears throat> and that's why he could put yeah. money into yeah. us. Yeah. Um, so certainly that exists. And in fact, a lot of the clever investors are starting to look more at participating in their investments revenue stream than this kind of classic equity mm-hmm. investments. Right? Yeah. So they would... So the, the way we're raising money this round is people are investing money in us and we promise to pay them back uh, two and a half times the money they've invested in us and our projections say that will go back in six years. That means they get a share of the, all the money we make mm-hmm. until, we pay, until we've paid them back. Yeah. So Which means they then get back a bunch of money and they yeah. can go invest it in someone else. Um, they don't have to rely on somebody to come along and, and buy our company because that's probably not going to happen in the social space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and do you uh, do you have some um, criteria for which investor you work with? I mean, if they're interested in your company, if they, if you get uh, aligned on 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 the whole, you know, revenue stream with it within X, X of years. Um, is there some ethical question that that you ask yourself, like if somebody from Shell would like to invest in your company, is that possible, or are you are you open for every every conversation? Does it matter? Um, I think the main criteria is that people are looking to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Like they, we we certainly expect them to want to get their money back. But we, we're interested in, in them solving the problem. There are certainly investors we would not take money from if we thought it was just greenwashing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did want to use that word, but now you did. <laughs> um, yeah. But within a lot of the big corporates, there are parts of the corporation that are trying to do some good. And, and, and it's one of those judgment calls mm-hmm. that everyone has to make. And, and we may not, you know, people may not always agree on it, even looking at the same entity. Is 
what they're doing in this social space just about making the company look good mm-hmm. or it's because they actually want to give back and solve a problem. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there are plenty of big corporates run by people who have, you know, have a heart and want to give back. Um, there are also corporates that, as, we, as I call it, CSR driven by HR and PR. Yeah, yeah. Right. The other way around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. Okay. And um, this is really, uh, we talk a little bit on the, on the society level of transformation about how investors operate nowadays, maybe less traditional than, uh, than what's happening in the space right now. They can reinvest their money to scale impact. Um, and if we, if we go back to you, to, um, if I'm correct, you have more companies than uh, Lumiter, right? Uh, no, I only have Lumiter at the moment. I have a I have a non profit which is on hold, okay. which, which mentors innovators in in working on solving big problems. Okay. Um, that's been on hold since I started Lumiter, um, but I have built a number of companies in the past. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, and um, what what when when did you start your first company? How did you came How did you came to that? Like, why did you want to start a company and just not work for an organization, or what was your drive? Oh, I think I've never been very good at working for a big organization. Mm-hmm. I've worked for small organizations, um, but I, for me, I need to either be organizing something or at least be working with a team where I'm part of the organizing team. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that's my personality. I mean, some people need to be solo consultants. Some people need to be, you know. Uh, a cog in a machine because they need the security. I've never been that bothered by the security. Um, and so that's my work style, whether, and it would be my work style, I think, whether I was for-profit or, or social sector. Mm-hmm. Um, now, have, once you decide that you're the kind of person that starts things and starts businesses, the question is, do you like, you know, how do you want to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, I started my first business when I was 25. Uh, I'd worked with some friends in a consulting business before that. Um, that business is still going, um, and that was a and it, I say the internet provider for the social sector, mm-hmm. and it was an it was a non profit because that was the right structure for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've probably done about fifteen businesses since then. So wow, wow, and and uh, was it all in the in the realm of technology and internet? Yeah. So um, my big interest is how do you use technology to solve mm-hmm. problems. Um, and again, not thinking that technology is the, necessarily the right or the best solution for everything. But um, that's where my skill and training is. Mm-hmm. So again, I think, I think for, for as, as with a lot of people, we're most effective when we look at what we're good at mm-hmm. and then figure out how to use that to achieve something. You know, what can, we, exactly. what can I do with what I'm good at that makes a difference? And I happen to have the skills to work across that border between engineering and, and business or engineering and people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not the kind of geek that sits in a dark room and works on a computer all day. Um, I like that. How do you use technology to you know, bring technology into society, bring technology into the world? That's, that's what gets me excited. Yeah. Uh, whether it's solar technology or green materials or whatever, it's like how do you take an idea and make it real at, at, and make it big? Great. And that's exactly uh, what I uh, what I've also noticed. That first you need to know where you're good at, and also in in what uh, what context do you maneuver yourself? 
because you can be really good in what you do. But then if you work in a context that doesn't work for you alone at a desk or maybe at a huge company, you cannot really do uh, what you feel you want to do, then it, yeah, it doesn't really unlock uh, your potential. So that's uh, that's good to to, uh, to 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 emphasize. So what um, in terms of the energy sector, what is uh, what is the status quo at quote at the moment? Do you feel like is there like I don't know a global transformation going on in terms of people uh, having recognition for the green, if I can call it like that, energy. Um, or do you feel there's it's still kind of uh, at the at the launching state? <laughs> I, I think it's um, it's different between the Western energy and developing country energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see in the West. I mean, I started a solar company was it eight years ago um, in Australia, right when Australia was just going through that start of the curve of it becoming viable. Um, and now things have moved on so far to where solar and renewable energy is cheaper than most fossil fuels, certainly for any new energy. There's no reason we should ever be building a new coal-fired power station or gas power station or nuclear power station now. I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity mm-hmm. to take that same money and build renewables and get just as good financial returns from it um, that that's my hope, actually. The hope isn't politicians changing the rules. The hope is... We've, we've got to a sufficient scale now that it actually makes business sense. Yeah, yeah. Because um, Remove we'll, the vested interest there. They belong to the past. Well, we'll cook the planet by the time that the, <laughs> the politicians suddenly start realizing that it makes more sense to take money from the renewable energy companies than to get bought off by the fossil fools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, fossil fools, yeah. yeah. Um, and in the developing country, I think that what's changed is with the in part because of, the, of what's happened in the West, the, the cost of solar has come down so much that it's now small systems are viable for people to buy for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a small solar home system with four lights and a phone charger and maybe a small fan is you know, in the range from $100 to $200, um, depending on whether you buy it with cash or you pay it over time and, and you know, what the duties are in different countries, what the customs duty is. But it's in that kind of range where, where if you give people a chance to pay for it over two years, people can buy it themselves. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, this is no longer something that has to happen slowly. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because people are already spending $2 a week buying kerosene and candles and batteries and paying someone to charge their phone. So I think what we'll see is, is a dramatic shift. Not a not a incremental shift or a linear shift. It will be exponential. It'll be in a similar. I see many of the same parallels um, that I saw around the early days of the internet, where suddenly it got to the point where everyone had an email. Why wouldn't you have an email? Because it made sense to you. Didn't have. To, it, you know, when I started doing email, I had to un- help people understand what email was and why they needed one. And then suddenly there, there was a shift, and. Yes, of course you had to have an email address. Yeah. And of course, then of course, of you course you out have otherwise. Yeah. Exactly. And I think we're seeing the same thing with like small energy solutions. And small energy solutions isn't everything. I mean, this is just you know, lighting and a fan. But mm. that's a massive difference to people who are otherwise using smoky kerosene lamps. You know, basically a tin can with a wick in it and kerosene. That incredible amount of fumes and smoke and trying to you know kids trying to study by candlelight. Mm. Those kind of things 
I think within five years will be a thing of the past. Uh, now, you know, the UN's plan is to take a debt 15, 20 years and spend 700 billion on it. It won't. It'll be a tenth of that cost and it'll happen five times as quick. Yeah. Because it will become something that people can do for themselves. And the only question will be how quickly governments get out of the way of people yeah. doing it themselves. <laughs> yeah, they can be a. Uh... Yeah, they can definitely uh, make their uh, um, the how do you say it the the, the law the, the the instructions to to interrupt the whole transformation or to to actually slow it down. I've actually worked on the energy transition in the Netherlands, so to speak. Uh, we at the moment have five percent of renewable energy, which is really nothing if we compare it with our neighbor countries like Germany, and it's not part of anything. It's really yeah, it's really the vested interests that just take over the whole, the whole energy realm. And uh, yeah, if you if I put um, solar panels here on the roof, I cannot really share it with my neighbors the electricity or the energy it generates because they have to pay twice as much tax. So this is those weird rules that it doesn't make mm -hmm. it efficient, and it's it's all really. Yeah, it's it's all really uh, uh, conv uh, conventional. It's it's not progressive and thinking along the lines that you're actually explaining right now and that's kind of disappointing and frustrating so i stopped actually working on that topic because it made me really sad back then um and when do you think well, this this oh sorry yeah i think that that's an issue across a lot of sustainability issues yeah that's true. is that you, you'll have one department one department of the government that's promoting it while the other departments are all getting in their way getting in the way of people trying to do it yeah um, and, and, and unfortunately, with the way that government is structured, and this is why I would be terrible working in government, um, but the way government is structured, there is no incentive for somebody in the sustainability department to stop going out there and waving the banner of stability and walk down to the environmental health department and figure out why they're not letting people put grey water systems in or walk over to the building permits department and say, why, when we're trying to promote solar energy, are you charging people huge fees to get permits to put panels on their roofs? I mean, yes. those are the kinds of things that we really need people in government to be working on. Um, and, and my question to any, uh, whenever I um, you know, go to some kind of political event and people are talking about how much good their government, their, whatever, whatever level is doing, I say, and how much are you doing to remove the barriers that other parts of your organization are putting in the way? Yes. Um, so the inter, uh, the interdepartment uh, um, structure of the of the ministries that they should work more in a collaborative way <laughs> instead right. of having different agendas in a sense. Right, and and in particular, um, this thing of you know if you're the sustainability minister, walk to the other. You don't. It's not about collaborating to necessarily do it together, but actually turn the mirror around and and start saying instead of promoting whether it's health or sustainability or women's rights or whatever yeah. look at what the other the parts picture. of your own organization are doing that that are counter to what you're trying to promote yeah Zoom and out. often that effect i mean you ask any small businessman and it's the same in the west or in the developing world is the balance of government helping you solve the, you know do what you're doing or is the balance of government getting in the way mm -hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how many small business promotion schemes or energy promotion schemes or whatever, almost any businessman anywhere in the world will say, government is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, but that's the way it, it the is. The system structured. works at the moment, yeah. 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 
And it, uh, it also um, neglects the chance of innovation. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's often a barrier. Right. Yeah, we right. are, the report we were working on, and it's out there actually, just called Breaks Loose. And uh, I will send it to you actually. It's, it's quite interesting to read. It's written by uh, also a university professor that's in the realm forever. And she's really, really hardcore. She's really tried to shake everyone up and make it, yeah, really get to the personal level even to get people intrinsically motivated to really do something different in the profile of their governance structure right. and whatever exactly. they, they're accountable for. Right. Um, I mean, I had an interesting conversation with a, with a mayor once uh, of a town I lived in, and, and she made a good point, which was, uh, you know, I, I was challenging her on this issue. Well, you know, innovation is change, and change is generally going against what the rules are, yeah. right? And that means it makes it hard to innovate both for good and for bad, right? And, and she was saying, well, it's very hard to write rules you know, I look at the project, and I look at the particular project we were talking about. It says, I look at that project, and I can obviously see this is a good thing. But it's very hard for me to write a rule that stops people diverging from the norm in the bad direction and doesn't yeah. stop people diverging from the norm in the good direction. And, yeah. and that's what we often see in, in you know, so this, these rules that were put in place to stop people selling energy to their neighbors are were put in place probably for a very good reason, but they don't make any sense in the time when everyone has can put their own generation on their roofs. Yeah. Right. So these kinds of changes get get so complicated. It's, it's also a part of jurisdiction that you have to consolidate if um, yeah if if you cannot make things worse or give uh, free yeah. field for the yeah the bad cops so to speak. Right, exactly. How do you stop the how do you stop the bad guys while making it easy for the good guys? Yeah, yeah. Which is obviously the subject of more movies than than. <laughs> than <laughs> yeah, and uh, I was wondering when is this uh, revolutionary change uh, gonna be around? Do you think? Um, the interesting thing with revolutionary changes is that, from an exponential perspective, everything looking back is moved very slowly and everything moving forward is looking very fast mm -hmm. from wherever you are on the curve. <laughs> and so um, I think we've seen a huge amount of change. It's just taken, you know, looking backwards, it's taken a lot of time. And looking forwards, it will happen 10 times as quick. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we'll see that both in the West and in the developing world. Um, and, and, you know... Um, they will be said, faster in the developing world as they will totally skip the whole... Um, uh, engineering of, of electricity in the, in, in the old uh, school uh, way, right? They, for them, it's way more effective and efficient to just start with solar panels or whatever right. they use. Right. I, I mean, and um, four, three or four years ago, when I was first doing the research in this, the estimate was that 40% of, of unserved people would be reached by extending the grid. So of the one and a half billion people that don't have electricity at the moment, roughly 40% will get it from extending the grid and 60%. And that was considered a huge statement that a, that a big international energy body had said that, that those were the numbers. Wow, 60% from, from um, uh, you know, small solar systems and mini grids. Mm -hmm. And now I think everyone's completely flipped it around. Mm -hmm. And so maybe 10 to 20% will come from energy grid extension and really 
because the grid extension projects are failing the world over largely because they're a great way to stick a lot of money in some politician's pocket. Mm. So the opportunity for corruption is huge. Yeah. Um, whereas when you give people the choices, the ability to make choices themselves, it happens quickly. Yeah. Because individuals make choices and then they see their neighbors done it and suddenly you, know, you move from a point where the early adopter in the village is doing it and they're the first person. Oh, what's that black square thing on your roof? Mm-hmm. To the point where everyone in the village says, well, I want one. It's working. Yeah. And that can happen quickly. So it's kind of a community you get there. Like people are advocating it very fast and helping yes. each other with it. Exactly. And so it moves from early adopters to you know, risk takers. It's like the classic, you know, there's an S-curve you see on graphs of mm-hmm. you know, things happen very, very, very slowly. And then everyone gets it. And then it's hard to reach the last few people. But really, you don't worry too much about those last people. It's they will some cases, a charity issue. In some cases, just, I'm sure we all know fossils who don't have email addresses. <laughs> all right. And, um, okay, so uh, when you were uh, like a teenager, were you also involved uh, for, of all those, uh, for all these good causes? Or did it change on the later stage? For me, it changed at university. Hmm. I grew up in a, in a relatively conservative suburb, was not exposed to a lot of you know, progressive thought, um, although I was interested in politics and how the world works, but I wasn't exposed to the kinds of ideas that suddenly I was exposed to at university. Hmm. And I think, I think, like many people, you know, university becomes a transformation in many ways because you, you move outside the bubble that you grew up in. And you meet all kinds of people from you know, different ethnicities, different ways of thinking about the world, different faiths, different, you know, all, all the differences that, and diversity that I think are one of the most important things that happen for people when they go to university. And do you remember a certain occasion or project that really resonated with you that, that yeah, maybe resulted into the person you are today? Um, I think a big part of it at university was discovering meditation and starting to look at myself as well as, you know, look inside as well as looking outside. And I think, I mean, obviously different people take that different ways, but for me it was realizing that happiness doesn't come from going out there and getting stinking rich, um, which I'm sure I could have done if I tried. Um, I believe uh, so. Right. You know, and happiness comes from, from how you treat other people and what difference you can make and, you know, you know, if you look back, it's like, were you, was, it, was it getting a bigger car that made you happy or was it the fact that you changed somebody's life? Yeah, wow, yeah. One person's life you changed, you, you touched, you know. Yeah. I think, I think one of the most satisfying things that ever happened to me was going to a computer conference and running into this young man who I just completely didn't recognize who said, oh, when, you were te- when, when I was 10 years old, you taught me how to program. Wow. Right? And he was at a computer conference now. He studied computers. And that, you know, that's the kinds of things we look back on as, as giving us satisfaction, not the, not the riches that we can make. The footprint. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah it's, it's, it's really beautiful that I actually hear you saying it, it's, it was kind of your inner journey before you could provide this ec- extra to the world uh, on society level or community level, organizational level. Um, 
and also yeah like i said host transform is really focusing on on mindset and and collaboration and new ways first providing help bef- yeah and think of your abundance in, ter- in instead of scarcity and and all that and sometimes it's hard especially for startups yeah i mean you need to pay the bills you know so it's difficult to stretch yourself um but we have some exercises that really stretch your consciousness um and as well as your comfort zone and therefore your circle of influence so i'm i'm really glad that that you you said that that yeah the internal journey is something we should not forget especially in in well in, in my opinion in the startup scene so to speak the new venture scene it's often about cool people and getting the best investors in and skill uh well in terms of money and uh get your google life uh, going or something and it's really dominated by men as well um so i feel sometimes like hey where's the consciousness here you know it's so cool that you made it but i i miss something yeah i find I mean, it difficult to connect sometimes maybe i'm judging and i am not open enough yet i don't know but sometimes i find it really difficult to connect with you know those 25 years old new venture ceos uh it's like a different level we're talking um but i mean if you talk to people who are working in a social venture space That's they may different. not talk about it publicly i mean in the startup space yeah i mean i yeah it's all about greed and and drive and whatever i mean and and fine but if you look in the social space whether it's social businesses or ngos or whatever when you look at people trying to make a difference there's almost always something that happened to them personally that made them val- value making a difference yeah. over making money um and and for different people it comes from different ways different some people it's through you know their faith religion whatever um other people it comes from you know personal growth stuff and yeah uh, or or even just something that happened to them you know the sense of gratitude for the the leg up they got somewhere along the lines or whatever um very different reasons for different people but most people have something that something or some collections of things that help them transition from you know to make it to make a difference because any social entrepreneur could be doing better personally and financially making money just for money's sake yeah um focusing only on that right right and getting the quick wins yeah so having said that do you also think that then in every person there's this need to contribute to the bigger picture but some people didn't have this special event to really be conscious about it or to go for that yeah i mean i think it can be awoken in most people if you're not a sociopath then you can, <laughs> then you can there's a there's a potential to wake it up but but there's also there's two parts to it one is to feel that you you need to make a difference mm-hmm. personally and the other is to know that you can make a difference and really the third thing is to know that you'll be okay if you're working to make a difference mm-hmm. so it, it there's a, there's also a realization that has to happen that you don't need all the shiny things that are advertised to you on TV <laughs> i mean the whole of TV and the whole of our like a lot of our world is based on trying to convince you that you're inadequate unless you have something that you can only have if you spend more money yeah and you can buy it yeah. drop that i mean i don't have a tv I, and i run an ad blocker so i don't see most of these ads and and i sometimes it amazes me that 
everyone wants to have something because really, is it going to make that much difference to your life? Is it yeah. going to make you happier? Probably not. Yeah. Um, now, I don't even have a TV anymore. I only you, yeah watch the internet if I have some uh, missed uh, episodes of something. And actually, your background is really beautiful. Where where are you at the, at the moment for the listeners? So I'm I'm in Mill Valley, which mm -hmm. is just north of San Francisco. And uh, basically, if you walk that way through that window, it's it's open space and woodland um, wow. out to the into the parks that are north of San Francisco. Well, for sure, you don't need a television then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, just to uh, wrap up the conversation and this really interesting podcast, I feel like we have touched upon so many topics and we could talk forever. Well, in, in my case, I think I could. Um, do, you, uh, do you have some tips for the listeners, advice for the entrepreneurs that would launch, uh, like to launch their social business? Um, um, what are three things you, you, you think they should think about or do b before they really get their hands dirty could be um, on any level i think first of all is find the one thing that you can do that will that that will make a difference that's not that no one else is doing don't go and do something that 20 other people have done and do your research first to figure out who else is doing it mm -hmm. um and I think that's the first thing so for me it was like finding you know, energy payments is one thing i can do um, doesn't have to be, but like find one thing that you can do that you can be the biggest fish in the you know. You know. As, yeah. as, there's a saying that says, "Find a pond that's small enough that you can be the biggest fish in it." Yeah, I heard that in all the business talks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to find a niche. Uh, but having said that, is it one thing I would like to say? I'm going to connect you with Sustec. They also have payment systems for water pumps in Africa. So mm -hmm. that's uh, one thing I would like to uh, connect you with. And the other thing is. Yeah, well, being super unique is is also hard, right? I mean, I can always right. think of something doing what you do in a different field. And do I have to quit with facilitating my sessions? Because I'm sure there's thousands of people that can do what I do. Um, I do find a different model, though. So I think that's unique. So And there's a lot of shoe shops, you know, and they also still maintain. So Yes, depends on what you want to do. Yeah. Like if you want to, if you want to work on solving a, a problem at scale, which is, I say, my, my fascination is how do you solve a problem at scale? Yeah. Which is my, which would be my second thing, right? Yeah. Which is, which yeah, is, second. Uh, is look at the problem at the scale of the problem. Yeah. You know, if there's 10 million people out there in the world have your particular problem, mm -hmm. um, and you've got a viable business plan to, to reach half a million of those. Wouldn't that be a much more viable business plan to reach five million of them? Mm -hmm. right? And you don't have to be unique. The other the other person can have the other five million. Mm -hmm. right? So it's it's like look at a problem at the size of the problem and start thinking pretty early on in the business how would you reach those people? So so for example, if I apply that to us, I could have said, yeah, we'll go solve the payment systems. We'll go build a solar home system and we'll go and sell that all over the world. But in reality, that wouldn't solve the problem at scale because reality is we'd only be able to do that in one district of one country, effectively. So for us, we solved that, you know, to think at scale meant saying, how can we partner with people in all these different places so that they can do it? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying partnership is the only way, but it's like look at a problem at the size of the problem. 
Yeah. Even if that's how do I solve the, you know, the social isolation problem of young people in this city? Like, it's like, how do I solve the social isolation problem for all of them rather than how do I solve it for the five people I can bring into my, into my sessions each week? Yeah. That's the, whatever the problem is, look at how you can solve it for everybody. And uh, I think the third thing is, is just be willing to take risks. <laughs> right? know, know what your personal needs are and they're usually a lot less than you think. You mean in terms of uh, your your basic exp expenses? Yeah, expenses, a place to live. I mean, I don't always try and put it in terms of money. You actually, your needs are not money. Your needs are a place to live, food to eat, friends. You know, what are those things that you need personally? Yeah. And it's a lot less than the rest of society thinks. Yeah. And having that ability to live on less money, which doesn't necessarily mean a, a less abundant life, mm -hmm. gives you the freedom. If you can figure that out, that will give you a huge amount of freedom to take risks and know that, hey, next, if I try this thing, we might succeed, but next year it might fail and I'll be trying something different. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a big believer in taking those personal risks. Um, it served me both in my business and my impact side of my life. Yeah. Uh, so failing is kind is is actually perceived as new information. It's not it's not something that you know is so, super destructive and now you stop everything and you will never do it again. It's just part of of the of the of the fun of the game of the of getting there. Right. I think that's the risk side of it. But the from a social entrepreneur's perspective, you've also got to look at it on the personal side. Mm -hmm. So I'm not at a company once. It wasn't the impact space and the company was failing um, most people were saying okay they've been living a, they've been living spending 10% more than their income coming in mm -hmm. always thinking they're going to have more money next month and so this is the classic very American way I think it's becoming true in the West living on credit mm -hmm. so suddenly the company failing was oh disaster how am I going to make the payments on my car my school payments my, my payments on my ex-wife and the kids you know all the all the things that, that, that were just draining them financially. Mm -hmm. And so it's a disaster. For me, it was like, oh, okay, company's failing. Um, I've been living on less than the money coming in. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can go take some time and think about what's next and look for opportunities. Yeah. And that opportunity could be going and doing something worthwhile, going and traveling to learn about some, some community that you might be wanting to try and help because you really can't help people unless you understand a little bit about what, what the problem is. Yeah, yeah, or, it sure. could be, or it could be jumping into a startup and not yeah. getting paid for the first six months. Yeah. Right? You can't do that if you're always living on credit. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's also how, uh, how my journey went, that I didn't really fit into big organizations. And then I thought, okay, I have a little bit of money now and I'm just, this is my learning curve. I'm just going to India, try things, trial and error, meet people, uh, see what my talents are that people are waiting for is really contributive to them or the world or teams. And uh, I feel really empowered only for the sake that, like you also mentioned, you know, tech is your realm and combined for now, it's combined with the, the energy sector, but not per se. 
And for me, it's the same with uh, being really good at facilitating a group, making sure that they fall in love with each other and do stuff rather than getting into conflicts or looking at stuff that doesn't work or being negative or pessimistic or maybe scared. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. Uh, at least I have that. And how that will look like for me in the future as a product or a service, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. It's work in progress and it makes it exciting, right? Um, and I know very few people who, who regret taking that little bit of money they had left over when a job finished and jumping on a plane to India or, or anywhere in the world. I mean, I fell in love with India, but yeah, it could yeah. be anywhere, you know, just going and doing something like that, learn so much, and then that turns into an opportunity. Yeah. I always say, like, and uh, do you want to get to know more about yourself? Go and start a company or join something new. Uh, that yeah, that's the biggest learning curve. You cannot get that in a, right. in a job and exactly. something fixed. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this was really interesting and uh, those final tips. So on a row, um, find the thing that you're really good at. So to be the big uh, fish in the pond. Um, make sure it's scalable. Solve a problem you uh, at scale. And uh, not the five people around you that may be a fan of you, but maybe you can, yeah, partner up with people that are already in the field. So do a little bit of research and uh, take some risk. Get out of your comfort zone and um, see how you will act as a person. And I'm really thinking, take in mind, what do you need to flourish? So if it's a couple of friends, if it's... Uh, one night of sports or whatever that keeps you going, keeps your engine going, then you can overcome uh, yeah, more disappointments or failures, I guess. So yeah, that, uh, is that a good wrap-up? <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to finish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Mitra, a lot. I will uh, wrap up this um, uh, podcast and please hang on because I want to talk with you a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Thanks. I hope this was interesting for you people. And um, if you have any questions for Mitra, please write, uh, write down this, uh, this YouTube, uh, your questions, your comments, or maybe you have some ideas. And, uh, oh, good question. One last question, Mitra. Do you, want, do you have a call to action for people to approach you? Or do you, have a, do you want to know something? Or do you want them to, to go to your website or something like that? Um, they welcome to go to our website, uh, www.lumita.net. Okay, cool. Okay, I have that in there. Okay, thank right. you so much for listening. Bye-bye.